0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated.
1: Would you pray with me? Father God, there is no end to your power and your might and your majesty and your wisdom and your righteousness and your holiness and your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your love. Father we confess that we could spend billion years and never come to the end of you and so father we gather together this morning seeking just just a taste of eternity just one more glimpse of who you are not just so that we can know some facts not just that we could expand our theology but father we would be blessed we would be blessed, that we would be changed, that we would be strengthened for whatever lies waiting for us on the other side of those doors. So Father, we ask that you would do this for us now. Not only reveal yourself in your word, but give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and behold what you have shown us. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, would you return to your feet, please? So we read a new text this morning. We're in Ephesians 1. We'll be reading together verses 15 through 22. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the rich the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Show me my Savior. Make this book live to me. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So a roadmap of sorts. I believe what's going to happen is we're going to spend the next two weeks together just dipping our toe into the waters of this magnificent portion of scripture. And then as we come to November the 27th, that Sunday morning, that's going to be the beginning of the Advent season. So actually the week before that, next Sunday evening, November the 20th, we're going to gather together in here at 5 o'clock as we always do for worship, but it's going to be a special service. We call it the service of anticipation. It's the kickoff to the Advent season. So what we're going to do next Sunday evening, we're going to gather together. We're going to worship. We're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper together. We've got a kids' choir that's going to come and sing some Christmas songs to us. It's just going to set you in the mood for the Advent season. And then in the four weeks that follow that, November 27th carrying all the way up through Christmas Eve, we're going to study together what God's Word has to say about the Incarnation. What does Scripture actually say about what it means for the Word? The eternal son of God to take upon himself the fullness of flesh why why was it necessary why did it happen and what does it mean for us and then Christmas day December 25th that's a Sunday so on that Sunday morning we're, th- we're going to gather together and we're going to worship we're going to take communion that morning as well we're going to gather together as a church family as a faith family before we get to the presence and all the excitement of Christmas Day, we're going to gather and we're going to worship together. Now, there will be no Sunday school that day. There will be no evening worship. I want you to have time together as a, as a family there in your home. But we're going to honor Christ on that morning. I'm really looking forward to what this, is, what this is going to look like. But for this morning, as you know, we have just concluded perhaps the most magnificent sentence in all of Scripture. Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 14. This was a eulogy of sorts, you'll remember the apostle paul swept us up into heavenly places pulled back the veil and showed us just the vast expanse of god's salvation of his people the father the son the holy spirit from eternity past all the way into eternity future guaranteeing not just planning not just accomplishing but applying the redemption of christ jesus to his saints I pray that you've been blessed by our time in this. I pray that you perhaps know this particular portion of text better than any other we've ever come to as a faith family. So now we move on to another magnificent portion of Scripture. Another really, really long sentence. We don't find our first break in the language here in the English translation until the end of verse 21. What we find here is a word of thanksgiving and of prayer. Now this is Paul's, this is his pattern. If you look back in most of his letters, what you find is that he'll issue forth in an immediate greeting to the people, identifying himself, identifying the people that he's writing to, and then immediately he thanks God for them. And then he offers up a prayer on their behalf. Now this prayer that we find here, this word that we find here, it it breaks down like this. In verses 15 and the first half of 16, we see Paul expressing thanks, giving the reason for his gratitude, the, the impetus for his prayer. And then as we carry on through the second half of 16, all the way down into 23, we see how he gives insight into what that prayer looks like. What kind of things does the apostle Paul pray for the church? Now, anytime God determines that he's going to give us insight into these inspired prayers of the apostles or of Christ Jesus himself, we do well to perk up. You see, there's a a common... Common conversation that I have with believers, oftentimes they they come to a point where they they understand what it means to study the scriptures and they know what it means as a faith family to gather together in sober-minded worship and communion with the Lord, but they struggle at the area of their prayer life. What is my prayer life meant to look like? What sort of things am I allowed to pray for? How do I find confidence when praying to God? We praise God that he's given us some insight. These are the inspired words of God showing us How should my saints pray? What sort of things should they be praying for? So I would encourage you this morning to go back and just study some of the prayers, the great prayers that God has revealed to us in Scripture. I might give you a few to consider for yourself. Go to Numbers 14 and look at Moses' prayer of selfless intercession on behalf of these sinless people who have dishonored God. Go and listen to this woman called Hannah's Prayer in 1 Samuel 2 as she praises God for this child that he has given to her, only for her to turn around and dedicate him back, give him back to the Lord. Go to Psalm 51 and listen to King David's song, his his prayer of true, heart-wrenching repentance, knowing himself to be a a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. Go listen to 2 Kings 19 and read King Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord as the enemies surround the city, and he's seeking to trust God to deliver them the way that he has promised. Go listen to the tax collector's prayer in Jesus' short parable there in Luke 18 as he cries out to God and beats his breast, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Of course, you could go to Matthew 6 and listen to the Lord's prayer. He reveals to us a picture. There's pictures all throughout Scripture Inspired words of God given to us to show us what should prayer look like? But my encouragement to you is that you don't just go and memorize these prayers just to recite them rotely. That instead you would allow them to saturate your soul. That you would come to God and you would consider what was the circumstance, what was the situation that this man found himself in? What were the emotions that accompanied this prayer? I believe that you'll find often that you're in similar situations. That's the beauty of what we now do on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we gather together and we study a different psalm, the hymn book of the early church, the hymn book of God's people. What you come to realize is that the prayers of the people, the songs of praise of the people, they run the full gamut of human emotion and experience. I think if we're not careful, we can have this idea that worship and and true meaningful prayer, it only comes at certain stations in life. It only comes when we have certain emotions, whether those be very high or very low. It only comes whenever we're in our quiet places, whenever all is calm around us. But as you read through the Psalms and you consider the circumstances surrounding these men as they gave up offers of of songs of praise to God, crying out to him desperately, you'll realize they're not a whole lot different than us. In the middle of craziness, in the middle of pain, in the middle of doubt, in the middle of their own failures, God was driving them to cry out to him. So this morning, as we consider this prayer that God has given us, this insight into the prayer that Paul offers. He's showing us how we ought to be praying for each other. What does it look like for Christians to pray for each other? What does it look like for a faith family to pray for each other? He begins it with this word, for this reason. He's telling us why he's doing this. Why am I giving thanks to God for you? Why am I offering up this prayer with confidence that God will answer it? Now, whenever you use a phrase like this, for this reason, it could point... One of two directions. Is it pointing to what Paul says next for the reason of what I'm about to say? Or is it point to all that's come before it? If he's pointing forward, he's saying, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. If it's pointing backwards, it's pointing to everything that we've just spent the last 27 weeks studying together. The vast sweep of God's salvation, the unity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in uniting together. Tearing down that dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles and making together of one people united in Christ Jesus. And specifically, those words that we found there at the end, verses 11 through 14, where he talks about the fact that those Gentile believers, they too, they heard the word of truth. They heard the gospel of their salvation. They believed. They were united to Christ Jesus in faith, and therefore they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But what immediately becomes clear to us is whether Paul is pointing forward because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, or he's pointing backwards because you too heard the gospel, the word of truth, and believed in him. Either way, Paul's making clear this is a prayer for Christian people. He's praying to these men who have found their lives joined to Jesus Christ through repentant faith. Now, there's plenty of prayers that we can and sure offer for the non-believers. I want you to think about the way that you pray for those that you desperately seek, that you desperately long to see come to believing, trusting, repentant faith in Christ Jesus. We pray for non-believers all the time, not just for their salvation, but for God's provision, for his healing, for his comfort, sometimes for his discipline in their lives. But over and over again, there are plenty of appropriate ways in which we as Christian people ought to be praying it would be right for us to pray with the non-believers. But then there are certain prayers that are only reserved for the Christian. There are certain prayers that we can only pray for the fellow believers. Think about Jesus in his upper room. One of the most magnificent prayers in all of scripture, when you get to hear the Son of God praying to the Father himself, is there any higher honor than this? I've often remarked it's almost like God is allowing us to peer into some place that we don't deserve to be. We don't belong here. I almost wondered did Jesus forget to turn off the microphone here? He's allowing us to hear the way that he prays to the Father. But I want you to think about so much of what he prayed about there in John 17 in that upper room. He said things like, God, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Unless you think that he's only praying about the apostles that are there in the room with him, he goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that Jesus was praying specifically for the saints, for the Christian, for those who heard and believed the testimony of the apostles. So what we see here from the apostle Paul is a prayer that is meant to be received by the Christian. He was showering this over those people who had believed, both Jew and Gentile, both the Jews to whom first the gospel came, from whom Christ Jesus came, and the Gentiles, you also, when you heard the word of truth, just as we made very clear as we studied those verses, 13 through 14 in Ephesians 1, we made very clear that these weren't promises that could be claimed by all the world. These spiritual blessings, these endless spiritual blessings, they don't belong universally to the whole of mankind. That not everyone can call themselves a child of God. Not in this sense, at least. That It's only those who have been brought to repentant faith. So in the same way, we see Paul continuing to pray for that very same group. Now, that's important for us to remember so that we can recall what the intent is to this letter. We've got to remember that Paul's intent in writing this letter to the people in Ephesus, it was driven by a pastoral concern. This is not an evangelistic uh, letter. His purpose here isn't to lead men in Christ, lead men to Christ. Will men come to Christ because of the testimony here? Absolutely. By the power of God, he can take any portion of his word, he can turn men's hearts, and he can bring them to salvation. But the ultimate purpose in this isn't evangelism. Even more than this, we need to be reminded that his intent in this isn't just some theological treatise. That he's not just taking the backing up the dump truck, so to speak, of everything that he knows about God and then just heaping it upon us. If we're not careful, it can feel like this, can it? As if. The Apostle Paul, he's just telling us a bunch of stuff about God. Well, we've got to remember that his primary concern here is to help and encourage and exhort and to strengthen the Christian. I've, I've felt this. I've felt this reminder very heavily. Listen, we move slowly. 32 weeks it's taken us to reach this point in this letter. I know some of you have felt it as well. You've wondered, why are you moving so slowly? Well, in part because of how high and heavenly and difficult so much of what Paul writes here is. But I've, I've felt the burden on my heart at times to make sure that we didn't just become a bunch of big-headed Pharisees, just gathering up all the information we can know about God and, and our minds grow, our theological canon grows, but our hearts are left completely unchanged. That's why I would pause every so often throughout our study and just remind you what it is that we're doing. Lest this mountain of theological doctrine just drown us out. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no place for that. Of course there is. Paul has given us this word. And the reality is that we, we live, many of us have been brought up, in a generation full of believers that have been taught that you leave your mind at the door whenever you come into the place of worship. That it's all about feelings and and emotions and your own personal experiences. That if a pastor or a church was ever to stand before you and tell you that God desires you to engage your minds, to think rationally about what he's revealed here, that they have somehow missed the mark, that they are a legalist, or that they automatically become a Pharisee of some sort. Or that we make this into the kind of a church where only the smart people can come. And yet I've reminded you over and over and over again, our ability to see the truths of God's word it is not tied to the power of our intellect it's those who have eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to believe and so we know that the ditch that lies on the other side for us in is that we just water everything down that we so water everything down that we refuse to speak the hard truths about who God is and what we rob people then of is the ability to be transformed because where does transformation comes it comes from seeing God as he is Otherwise, we find ourselves worshiping a God that never was. A God of our own imagination, a God that settles well with a nonbeliever. Now, I don't want to build a straw man or an unfair caricature of those that don't embrace theology the way that we do. I know what drives this in part is because God is really, really scary. All throughout Scripture, anytime I find a man coming into contact with the living God, there is one recurring picture. That man falls down on his face like he was dead. Woe to me, I am undone. I'm an unclean man from an unclean people, and my eyes have beheld the glory of the Lord. Surely I shall not live. It is scary. He is big, he is powerful. He is awe-inspiring. I recognize that. The question is, will we embrace it? Will we celebrate it? Whenever I speak to fathers, one of the greatest joys I have is whenever I get to speak to a man later in life that is clear that God is bringing him to give his life to Jesus Christ. I'll never forget, there was a young man that I was meeting with. I was, we were speaking about baptism. He was, it was clear God had his hand upon this young man. He was leading him to give his life to turn his life over to Christ. And he had a little daughter that was there with him. And one of the things I looked to that man and I told him, what your little girl needs more than anything else in all the world is not to know that she has a great, big, strong, powerful daddy. She needs to see her big old daddy on his knees before the great, big, strong, powerful God. She needs to see you tremble. So I understand why we have this, this fleshly impulse to pull back from the scope and the scale and the magnitude and the majesty of the God who reveals himself here. And I realize how much work it takes. It's hard because our mind doesn't work in these terms. We're so surrounded by watered-down things and things that are meant to play on our emotions and distract our minds and never allow us to just really sit and contemplate anything for a moment. I understand this. It's a constant battle. How often have I come before you and told you that one of my recurring prayers is, God, cause me to want to study your word. Cause me to want to be before you in prayer because my heart doesn't always want this. And so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with us doing the things that we have done, coming and sitting and just basking in the glory of God. I want you to think about the 18 months worth of Wednesday nights we spent as I sat right here. What did we study? The attributes of God. Just the nature of who God is. We could have done another 18 months. We could have done 18 centuries. Just sitting together studying who does God reveal himself to be? Trusting that when we see him as he's revealed himself, that's where transformation comes. But again, there is great danger in this. There's great danger. Even when we come to the scripture and we ask, what does God actually mean by what he has actually said? Whenever we start picking apart words and phrases and, 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 and sentences and grammar and all these things, there, there's always this danger that we could completely miss God in all of it. That we can become a people that talk about God but never know God. We know all kind of facts about God, but we never know God. So that's the danger. What was Jesus' prayer in the upper room? What did he say was the very picture of eternal life, that they made know you, the one true living God, and Jesus your Son, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not knowing about God. Eternal life is knowing God, seeing God as he is, and being transformed. So if I could recommend to you just one book, one book for you to read between now and the end of the year, apart from the, the Scripture, of course, I would recommend to you J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It does a beautiful job of not just laying out a bunch of facts about who God is, not just showing us God's attributes in Scripture, but calling us to know this God, to see and know, intimately know, passionately and personally know who is this God knowing that it's in him as we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that then we are transformed. How can you know that you just know about God and you don't know God? The question is, how much do you become like him? Humility, mercy, forgiveness, grace. You'll be transformed by these things if you're actually knowing the God that you see in Scripture. If you find yourself becoming haughty or prideful or short-tempered, are disrespectful of others that don't have the same passion you have for the theology that you see in Scripture, then you don't know God. You just know about God. That's why Paul says here in verse 18, we'll come to this in a few weeks, that his prayer is that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. See, Paul doesn't just want their minds to be enlightened. He wants their hearts to be enlightened. He wants them to be transformed by what they see. What is he praying specifically for here in this section? He's praying for the, that they would see that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to see the hope to which they have been called. They would see God's glorious inheritance among the saints. They would see the power of God at work, not just in the resurrection of Christ Jesus, but in their own salvation. Isn't that just a recap of everything else that we've been looking at? He's saying all the things that i've just told you lest you just allow those things to seep into your mind and make you proud My prayer is that he would enlighten the eyes of your heart that you too would be changed That you would be strengthened That you would be encouraged So that's my prayer for us It's been a hard 32 weeks I've asked a lot of you when you've walked into this place I've asked you not to leave your brain at the door I've asked you to take whatever you learned in this place and then go and check me against Scripture. Make sure that I'm not a liar or a heretic or deceived or the devil. Check me against the words of Scripture. That takes a lot. That means you don't just not get to leave your mind at the door when you come into this place. You got homework too. And my fear is that in my pressing of you to do this thing that your heart might get left behind. So I'm encouraging you now, as the Apostle Paul is, to bring your heart. I'm praying to God. He would enlighten the eyes of your heart. What he's praying here is that this incredibly rich theology would completely transform us. Not just our head, but our heart. Not just our mind, but our soul. So what we see Paul doing, we can think of, this is the way it works in my mind. What we can think of in all the things that have come before is like like Paul was laying down the firewood. He's setting the kindling and he's he's preparing everything. He's making it just right. And he comes to the end of this and he recognizes, but unless there's a spark, nothing happens. Unless the spirit works, this doesn't catch fire. And what he wants is a raging inferno inside of our hearts. He wants us to fall so madly in love with this God who has saved us that no matter what the world tempts or taunts us with, we will not be tempted to fall away. Much like Elijah Praying to God to send down fire from above. God, show these people that you are there and that you are real. Show them that there is a God in Israel and that He and He alone is the one that brings the fire. That's what it feels like to me—the Spirit and the Word. That—that's Paul's primary concern. You notice it's not for their healing. We have insight into a pastor praying for the people, and what is he praying for? He's not praying for their healing. He's not praying for their provision. He's praying that they would see and know God, that they would grow in the knowledge and wisdom and insight in their heart and in their soul to who he is. Father, let them see you with their hearts. So he says, for this reason, how can he pray confidently for these people? How can he pray confidently knowing that he's not just praying for a bunch of spiritually dead people? Because you take this word, you can take all the masterful theology, all the beautiful message of scripture, you can lay it out with just spotless reasoning, arguments that are impenetrable. You can lay out all the theology you want, and if there's no spirit within them, if they're not followers of Jesus Christ, it's just going to be like Charlie Brown's teacher. So how can he be confident that these people, that these are the kinds of people who have within them the Spirit of God that could enlighten their eyes, the eyes of their heart, so that they could see and believe and grow and be changed? He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. What Paul is essentially saying is I've heard of the genuineness of your profession. I've been assured that salvation is yours. Now when I first came as your pastor four years ago, you may or may not remember that our first book to study together was 1 John. And what we found there in John's letter was that his purpose was that these people might know that eternal life was theirs. That's what he says in the fifth chapter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Now at the very beginning of my study of that book is I really began to try and find the outline and the, the flow of the argument in john's letter i stumbled upon some writings by a man named an englishman by the name of john stott and he very brilliantly showed me that that there are these three tests that, and they become obvious too as you read through the text that there are these these three tests that john lays out for us that you can know that your faith is real that you can know that eternal life is yours but this man named john stott he compared them to the signs of actual physical life you probably remember me bringing you this analogy He talked about if you were driving down the road one day. You can imagine this scenario. You're driving down the road someday, and you you see that there's a car, and it's wrecked, and there's a man laying in the ditch, and his wife is standing over the top of him. And you come running up to this woman, and you say, Oh, no, ma'am, is everything okay? Is your husband still alive? How ridiculous would it be in that moment if that woman said, Of course he's alive. Look, here's his birth certificate. And yet, that's what so many Christians do. We come to them and we say, Do you have eternal life? Is eternal life yours? And they say, Of course it is. Look at this card in the front of my Bible. I prayed for salvation on June 17th, 1983. But he says, No, what you would do is you would lean down over the man and you would test for respiration heartbeat for reflexes for pupil dilation i don't know i'm not a nurse or a doctor but you attest for something you attest for signs of life and it seems clear that what john is saying is it is just like that with spiritual life that there are three tests there are three signs this isn't the basis for our life this isn't the grounding for our life but this is the fruit this is the evidence that spiritual eternal life is ours. Number one, a orthodox biblical understanding of who Christ Jesus is, namely the incarnation. Number two, a personal life of holiness. And number three, a love for the people of God. Again, this is not the basis of our salvation, Somebody comes to me and they say, listen, I want to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. I want eternal life. I don't say to them, very good. Now go off and make sure that you have an orthodox understanding of Christ. Very good. Go off and get your life together and walk in holiness. Very good. Go out and cause yourself to love the saints. And then eternal life will be yours. No, it's only through repentant faith. And yet the one that has been joined to Christ Jesus through repentant faith, they will see these marks. Just as James says that faith without works is dead. So what Paul is doing here is he's distilled it down to two. He doesn't talk about these three tests. He talks about two, that your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints has been reported to me. Now, if you read through Paul's letters, you'll repeatedly find him speaking of faith and love together. One man this week called it the acid test. What is the acid test that eternal life is yours? What is the acid test that your faith is real? It is this. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 3.6, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, or the parallel to this morning's passage, Colossians 1.4. We see it over and over and over again, faith leading to love. That that's the signs that we look for. That's how we can know that eternal life is ours, the true test of genuine faith. faith. Faith, producing love for all the saints. So closely connected are these that when we get to when we remain in John's letter, 1 John 3, 23, he's talking about this. How can we know for sure that we are of God? How can we rest assured in our hearts that we are of God? He says that we keep his commandments. 1 John three twenty three, and this is his commandment. What is his commandment? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. He's making clear that true faith in Jesus Christ will always, always, always lead to love for the saints. But it's never the other way around. You've seen churches that sought to make love the means of salvation. That sought to make love the end-all, be-all, and completely missed faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. And beloved, you can't have love without faith. Not this kind of love not true, enduring love for the saints, it must always begin with a people that are united in their faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ first, driving the love. That's why we spend so much time presenting and talking about what is true repentant faith. Because if we seek to build unity around anything else, if we skip right over this and we think, we think you know what, we're not going to talk about difficult doctrines. We're not going to talk about who Christ Jesus really is. We're not going to talk about what true repentant faith is. We're going to skip right to the unity, right to the love, right to the fellowship. You'll find that you've got nothing. You've got fool's gold. You've got a vapor that's always vanishing. So we spend so much time talking about what does true repentant faith look like. It begins, of course, with the knowledge of who Christ is. Who is he? You can't believe in a Christ who doesn't exist. Who is he and what has he done? Then we move on to talk about the necessity to believe these things to be true. Do I believe what the scripture says about Jesus to be true? But even that's not enough. The question is, am I now trusting in that? You remember this from four weeks ago. We just basically presented the gospel and talked about what does it mean to come in repentant faith? To rest the whole of yourself upon it the fullness of your weight upon it, to live your life in such a way that you look up and say, if this gospel proves to be a lie, then I'm in deep, deep trouble because I have not hedged my bets. But it's then as we have been found united in Christ Jesus that your hearts are going to be drawn to the fellow, fellow saints, to other believers. You know what this looks like. Look around this room and see the diversity of backgrounds and histories and there's nothing that would abound to people like this together apart from faith in Christ Jesus. I think about the encouraging notes and letters and texts and phone calls and conversations that I have with people all throughout this room. There is no reason any single one of you would love me because I'm unlovable. I'm an easy guy to hate, and yet you people love me. Why? Because we're joined together in Christ Jesus. Because of the bond that we find as one body in him. That's where the driver is. That's where this thing comes from. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in and through us. He gives us the ability to love the unlovable. Not just the people that are easy to love. Not just the people that have something to offer you in exchange. Not just the people that tell you what you want to hear. The people that are joined together with you in Christ, those your heart is bound to. And knowing that true love is going to be a love that tells the truth. The true biblical love, that's a love that comes from the people that are joined together in Christ Jesus, it's going to be a love that sometimes steps on toes, That while love overcomes a myriad of sins, while love is quick to forgive and slow to anger, while love assumes the best about the brother and sister sitting in front of you, love does not sit silently as a brother or sister whom you love seeks to drive their life off of a ditch. To run their life off of a cliff. Love does not sit silently as the bride of Christ is attacked and threatened with destruction. That love tells the truth. So what the Apostle Paul says is, because I've seen evidence of this in your life, because I've seen this kind of faith, I've heard word of this kind of faith, that you have the kind of faith that has joined you once and for all to Christ Jesus as Lord. And because I've seen evidence of this faith playing out in the love that you have for one another, I do not cease to give thanks for you. That's a weird phrase, right? He's not just thanking God for the faith and the love that these men have, he's thanking God for these men. Why does Paul care? Why does Paul care that these men are true believers, that their faith is genuine? Why is that a thing for which he needs to give thanks? Paul's not a man that's worried about numbers. He's not about a man that's this worried about going back to the church in Antioch or the church in Jerusalem and reporting about all the converts that he has won. What is it about these men that makes Paul so very thankful to hear that their faith is sincere and that their love is genuine? I thought about that a lot this week. That was the, the primary focus of my studies this week. Thinking through, why, why is this a driver for thanks for Paul? And then... I stumbled across, uh, actually, a, a brother sent me a clip from a sermon that was almost completely unrelated to this, but it's, it's amazing the way God will do this, right? He'll take a thought from another pastor or another Christian as they're chasing down a thread of something in Scripture, and immediately you see it arcing right to where you are in your own life, right to where you are in your own studies. And so this sermon was from 2 Timothy, the end, it's, 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 you're coming to the end of Paul's life and I want you to just picture what Paul looks like by the time he gets to the end of his life. How many lashes he has received, how busted and gnarly his hands must have been, shipwrecked, I imagine he can't have weighed more than a buck 20. I mean, skinny and, and, and withered and beaten down and exhausted and hated by so many. And he finds himself in prison and he knows that the end is near. He knows that he knows that death is not far off from him he knows that he's fixing to lay down his life martyred for the sake of christ jesus and so he knows these are some of his very last words before his death and he's writing to the pastor timothy who happens to be in ephesus at this point we're probably i don't know maybe seven years after the writing of this book of ephesians and this is what he says i want you to pay attention to two names in this text i want you to pay attention to the name alexander and the name demas This is Paul writing to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus in Treos also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. Now, Paul will go on to say that the Lord alone stood by him and strengthened him in his day of trial. He was all alone standing to give an answer for this gospel that he continued to proclaim, knowing that it would cost him his life. But I think perhaps the reason that the Apostle Paul was filled with such thanksgiving and joy for these true and faithful believers that exhibited their love among the saints was he knew the sting of those that fell away. says that Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. Scripture tells us that To be in love with the world is to be at enmity with God. I I don't know the story here. Was the guy lost? Did he just wander away for a season and then repent and come back? We don't really know, but it's saying that Demas has deserted me. He loved the world too much. I want you to think about the parable of the sowers. What happened there? That the concerns of riches, that the trouble of this world, it choked out any signs of life in some of these. Then this man named Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm for he strongly opposed our message that this man was out there that so much so that Paul is praying that God will repay him according to his deeds, that he was out there opposing the true gospel message that he proclaimed. And so I can't help but think that the reason that Paul's heart is swelling with thanksgiving for these true believers, for these believers that are enduring even now, is that he knows the sting of being abandoned. He knows the heartbreak of watching those that you thought were tracking wandering away. So he says here, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, Paul wasn't caught off guard by this. Jesus himself had warned that this is the picture, that this is the path we sign up for. Whenever we say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, he warned his people over and over and over again. Matthew 10, 34, he said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own house. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul believed the words of Jesus Christ, and he lived them. He watched him as everything that he once counted as precious in his life was stripped away completely. And yet at the end, what did he find there? was Christ Jesus, and he knew that he is enough. Beloved, this is the picture of what we've signed on for. You're going to endure. What did I say to you last week? Over and over and over again the scripture says he who endures to the end that we must endure and that never in my life Have I had somebody come up to me and say you're going to have to endure this pint of ice cream You're gonna have to endure a nap you're gonna have to endure a warm word of welcome from a friend No, you endure things that are hard You endure things that are challenging you endure things that at times are gonna make you feel like your heart's getting ripped out And you can't handle anymore Jesus said this thing will happen because there is nothing that rips a man's heart out any more than the loss of relationship. Then to believe that you are equally yoked together with somebody and you are marching towards the gates of heaven only to find that their love for the world was greater than their love for Christ. That they did not believe the gospel message that you thought you were both proclaiming. Paul had seen this promises from Jesus playing out in his very life and yet he counted it all as gain. Is a thing to be rejoiced in because jesus didn't just stop with that message he didn't just say listen i've come and your relationships are going to be shattered your most intimate relationships husbands with sons daughters with mothers mother-in-laws with daughter-in-laws he didn't just say even within your own household there's going to be division but there was a promise on the back side of this you remember when the rich young ruler went away because he knew that the cost was too much Jesus looked to this young man that called him Lord, that had humbled himself by kneeling in the dirt, that wanted to follow after Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus had told him, because he loved him, he had told him, you must sell all that you have and come and follow me. The problem wasn't the money. The problem was that the money had become an idol in this man's heart. That clearly he loved this more than he loved the idea of following after Christ. So because Jesus loved the man, he told him the truth, and the man went away sad. And you remember the encounter, or the exchange then, as, as Jesus and his apostles, they talked about the impossibility of salvation apart from the working of God. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's a natural question, isn't it? If all my friends are gone, if all my relationships are busted, if everyone that I thought was once with me is now against me, what then do I have left? I've abandoned all them and I'm going to keep following you because I know you're worth more. I'm going to keep following you, but what then do I have? Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world when the son of man will be seated on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, in Mark's parallel to this, in Mark 10, he doesn't just say in the time to come, he says, but now in this time. It seems to me very clearly that what Jesus is saying is not just that I am enough, but that I will use my body. I will use your brothers and your sisters. Yes, you may lose a brother, but you'll gain a hundred. Yes, you may lose a mother, but you'll gain a hundred. I don't think he's just talking about himself. Ultimately, is he our hope? Of course. Ultimately, is he more than enough? Of course. But he says, look around you. I will surround you with other believers. I will give you a new family to make up for the one that you have lost. That's why he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Peter is speaking to the church in Ephesus. He's speaking to his own heart. He's speaking to us here this morning, and he's saying, yes, some will leave. Some will fall away. Some will abandon the course. Some will attack you and oppose your message. But look around at who has stayed. Look around at those who have endured and thank God. Because not only is their faith a gift from him, so is their endurance. That the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that caused them to come to life, to repent and believe in him, that's the one by which he holds them and endures them even now. He says, look around and give Thanks. Because Paul knew how difficult life was in a city in love with Artemis. Paul knew how tempting it was to turn away. He knew about the taunts and the temptation and the attacks and the loss of relationship and even death. He knew how difficult it was. And he knew how difficult this thing that he was calling them to was. Listen, when he prays for us that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to grow in the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of the things of God, you need to understand that the way that most often happens The means that God most often uses, it's not sitting right here on a Wednesday night. It's getting your head kicked in out there. It's sitting in a hospital room, sitting in somebody's living room. It's sitting in your boss's office when you just got laid off. It's sitting in your living room while your marriage seems to be falling apart. It's going into the bank to beg for money so that you can make it to the next payday. It's in all those places that you really really come to know God as he is. Intimately know God as he is. It's not a classroom exercise. It's not even a thing that happens here in the calm the calmness of a Sunday morning. We plant the seeds now, you find that they give you life out there. And so when Paul prays for this thing, if the Ephesians knew what was up, if you knew what was up, you might be tempted to say, "Thanks Paul, but pray for something else." Because I know what that means. When you pray that I would know God more intimately, When you pray that I would know him with the eyes of my heart, I know what this means, and it means trouble. It means sorrow. It means pain. It means suffering. It means the refining fires of this life. You see, Paul wasn't praying for an end to persecution. He didn't say, God, protect them from the threats and the taunts and spare their life. He's saying, God, I pray that through all of this, they would see you. That is everything that they once cherished is stripped away. Again, I say they will find you there, and they will know that you are enough. And how much more precious then do those who walk with you become? Beloved, I tell you, look around. Look around and see who is here. And thank God. He's not called you to do this as a lone wolf. He's not called you to carry your own burden all the way to the very end. He says, I'm going to send around you like-minded, faithful, saint-loving men and women. You're going to do this life with them. They, too, will have their hearts ripped out. How many times have I told you that this Christian life, it will rip your heart out in the best kind of way? Because I know your burdens, and you know my burdens. and So Paul knows what he's asking these people to do is impossible apart from the work of God. It can't be done why so many people fall away and he knows that what he's calling him to do he's calling him to do in the middle of wartime church you know this we're a wartime church there's spiritual warfare raging all around us there is an enemy just just prowling around us desperately seeking to destroy you and your children So we must live with a wartime mentality, a wartime people with a wartime mentality, recognizing that what lays ahead, there is no promise of ease. There's a promise of great pain and trial and suffering. So as we sit in a place like this, we look around and we say, thank God that you have caused these people to walk through this with me. I want you to think about some of the things that Paul had witnessed there in Ephesus. See, it's weird that he says, I've heard of your faith and your love towards all the saints because He was there. You go to Acts 19. Paul was there for almost three years. He was there and he saw the Spirit of God coming upon these people in a very tangible way, witness to the fact that that the Spirit was at work within them. We see that in Acts 19.6. He was also there whenever there was a riot. The pagans rioted and they, they wanted to destroy them because this gospel that they proclaimed, it was threatening their way of life. It was threatening their livelihood. He was also there when they got kicked out by the religious people. He was also there when the religious establishment felt threatened by this gospel that they preached. And so they had to pull back from them into a more secluded place. They had to pull away and they said, fine, you can have this place and we will go over here and worship God. So he knew what it was like to be attacked by the pagans. He knew what it was like to be attacked by the religious establishment. He had seen all of this. For nearly three years, he was there with them teaching and exhorting and encouraging and sharing the gospel with these people. And now here we are almost 10 years later. And what does he find out? That their faith continues on. There have been even people added to their number. And so he thanks God. He says that he thanks God without ceasing. He thanks God day in and day out. Every time he goes to the Lord in prayer, he's saying, I thank you, God, for the church in Ephesus who continues on. Not just for the church corporate, but for those individual saints whom you have caused to not just trust in Christ Jesus, but to passionately love your saints. And were they perfect? Of course not. No we don't we don't see the same kind of words of rebuke from Paul here in letter to the Ephesians that we do maybe in his letters to the Corinthians. We we don't know what specific problems they had but you can be sure that this was not the perfect church. Paul wasn't thankful for them because they had all their stuff together. He wasn't thankful because they didn't have their challenges. He wasn't thankful because they were the only infinitely faithful church in all of history. But ultimately he was thankful. Not for their gifts, not for their works, not for their talents, but for them, for the existence of blood-bought, spirit-filled saints of God. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He knows that the only way that they're going to endure is to see and know God. This is why he's remembering them. He begins his prayer to God by thanking him. And I encourage you to do that. Would you thank God? That's what I did yesterday afternoon. After I was done kind of figuring out the the path that I thought this sermon was meant to go, I went and I laid down on the floor in my study and I prayed God and I thanked him for you. And I'll tell you the way I did it. I went up that side, I went down this side, and I went up that side. Because most of you sit in the same place most weeks. I was able to picture your face and I was able to thank God for each of you. Thank God. And then I pray, dear God, by the power of your spirit, would you cause them to endure? And I know that endurance only comes if they see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. So would you enlighten the eyes of their heart to see and to grow in this sight, to grow in their vision, to grow in their love for you? That's what Paul prays for here. He's praying, dear God, don't let the vision just stop in their minds. Allow it to permeate their hearts and to completely transform them. But you'll notice, again, that Paul doesn't wait until his own life is in order to do this. He's in prison. He's in prison. And again, I tell you, his life is, physical life is all but faded from just He's beaten. This is not the same time he was writing to Timothy, but even at this point, his, 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 his body has borne the brunt of, of a lot. He himself is sitting in prison, and what is he doing? He's thinking about others. Because here's the thing. If we sit in this room right now, and we go, well, yeah, Yes, yes, we should be thankful for the saints and we should pray on their behalf. We should seek God's spirit enlightening eyes for their heart. Yes, we need to pray for our brothers, but you know what? I got so much going on right now, I don't have time for this. I've got so much going on right now, I can't put my heart upon this. What excuse do you have if Paul had no excuse? The waters are never gonna be calmer. You you may have these little lulls, these little seasons, but you know that there's something just waiting on the other side so we don't wait for those moments. We don't wait for those mountaintop moments. We don't wait for those plateau moments. We don't wait for those moments when all the waters are calm and then we go to thank God and then we go to pray on their behalf. It's now in the middle of the turmoil, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of prison that we're praying for each other because the same enemy that's seeking to destroy you is seeking to destroy them. So I conclude with this. Romans twelve nine. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I join with the Apostle Paul in thanking you for these saints. For these whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. Who you have secured by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Whom you have brought by your spirit to trust and believe in Christ Jesus and for the love that is in them. I thank you for this family that you are building. Father God, I pray that no spirit of discouragement or dissatisfaction or fear Our anxiety would take hold. But that, Father, we would live with a constant spirit of thanksgiving to you, not just for your good gifts, but for this family, the body, the bride of Christ Jesus. Father, my prayer is that as we leave this place today, we would be strengthened and encouraged. We would be ready to tackle whatever comes next and trust that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. So, Father, as we lift our voices together one more time, I pray that you would receive these words of praise, that you would be honored, that we would be changed. Father, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.